some things that have um, been uh, of interest to me recently and uh, have been part of conversation with a number of other Zen colleagues. And it, it's been focused perhaps around what really is Zen practice or what do we do it for? You know, what, what do we hope that it might lead to? What, what is it that we, we are doing and to what end? Um, we have many ideas about what Zen practice can be, I think. Um, many of mine were uh, essentially self-improvement um, ideas, I think, initially. But I was very influenced by, uh, I only spent a few months in Kokuteiji in Japan, but uh, at the end of the three-month winter training period, uh, in February, where Kokutaiji is on the west coast of Japan, so it's a very uh, heavy snow country. And the head monk who had taken me under his wing uh, at the end of three months, that's quite intense training, he would go uh, for the month of February to a small temple higher up the mountain, uh, which was snowed in, and um, sit a month-long session by himself. And uh, I helped and, and watched him prepare in his robes and um, they wove a straw, a rice straw uh, um, raincoat for him and he wore his hat and um, put leggings on and rice sandals and took off in uh, waist or thigh deep snow uh, to go off for a month by himself. I was struggling with uh, living in a building, an unheated building. But there was something very uh, perhaps romantic and ideal that I had about this particular man and his practice. And then when I moved to the United States, um, I was initially living in San Francisco and attended a number of meetings and, and Zazenkai at the Zen Center of San Francisco and associated temples. And this was soon after um, they had gone through a very difficult period of um, scandals involving teachers. And um, I was sitting with people that I'd only heard about at a distance, but had been practicing for many years, that were in tears about how to proceed, that um, much of what they had thought Zen might offer people, uh, even their teachers, um, let them down. And then I had already met uh, Joko at this time and been corresponding and speaking on the phone to her. So we moved down to San Diego, but there, uh, that was soon after um, a series of scandals rocked uh, the Zen Center of Los Angeles, and so um, uh, of which Joko was and her daughter and others, close people that became close friends, are involved in. So um, while I had really been appreciating sitting and and its obvious values, there was also this kind of uh, how could 
people of some considerable experience make such terrible mischief. And um, it's still a question for me, not so much uh, that um, I think uh, most of us are capable even of the sorts of mischief that some teachers have maybe done, but more just, is there something in our practice that we're still not seeing uh, that, that we might be holding on to or is difficult for us to approach that might lead to less than skillful actions? And I'm not necessarily talking about gross unskillful actions, but even just in, you know, are we able to look after ourselves and each other, get enough sleep, eat, eat okay, or, uh, you know, simple things, not, not necessarily um, big problems. So I thought I would approach this um, through a well-known um, story in our tradition, and that of the uh, sixth lineage holder in China, Huinan. And uh, it's a long story, so I just want to highlight a couple of parts, but, and you may be familiar with it, but for those who aren't, this, the um, Huinang was an illiterate monk who had uh, some sort of glimpse of something in listening to um, uh, the recitation of a sutra. And so he went and lived in a monastery, and, um, but he, being illiterate and, and uneducated, he was assigned rather menial tasks. But the teacher of the monastery was getting on. And um, so he said to choose a successor, he, he invited his um, students to write a poem expressing their um, understanding. And the persons uh, with the poem uh, that was the most skillful or wise or insightful would be the one that he would pass on transmission to. So um, he, uh, I won't go through the whole story, just a couple of things, but he, he cautioned his students that, you know, I want to tell you that the cycles of life and death are a serious matter. Every day you're seeking the fields of felicity. This could be meritorious acts or how to be a human being. What is it to be a good human being? You're seeking these, uh, how to be a good human being, but not seeking to escape the bitter sea of repetitive life and death. But if you're misled about your own nature, how can such meritorious acts help you? Um, and so he said, uh, each of you should write a gatha, a short verse about it. Whoever best expresses the essential idea will be given the Dharma robe and become the next lineage holder, the sixth lineage holder. So now go quickly and don't delay. Long thought is not needed. A person who has seen the essence can immediately talk about it and thereafter cannot forget it. Even amidst swords and chariots, he never loses sight of it. So, you know, we can, uh, amid swords and chariots, maybe conjures up a little bit of the notion of our modern lives, busy, rushing around, full of social media and all sorts of things. 
So the head monk, uh, the the one that was everybody thought, you know, he's going to he's going to win this, so we won't even bother. Um, but he, of course, felt some pressure to come up with something, and he went to uh, he did write a, a poem, and he went to present it to his teacher at night, and he'd chicken out, and he'd it'd be uh, full of doubt and would it be enough and so on. So he chose to write it on a wall. And uh, interestingly, there was a painter there at the time who was painting pictures or scenes from the Lankavatara Sutra or the scripture of the entry into Lanka. And um, the Lankavatara Sutra, by the way, I think maybe. um it, it may be mentioned here because this is one of the great sutras that have influenced Zen, along with the Samdina Mochana Sutra or the Sutra on Elaborating Thought. And these are both kind of Yogachara, I'll come back to this, Yogachara Sutras and uh, have influenced very uh, much Zen practice. So he wrote uh, where this painter was writing these scenes and he wrote, the body is the tree of wisdom. The heart is like the stand of a bright mirror. Hour after hour, we wipe them clean and do not permit dust to settle on them. So he's giving a really beautiful poem on what, practice is and um, uh, you know as we watch the three folks that are sitting in the zendo we see this how they use the body um, and their minds in careful attention to the details of offering a stick of incense or bowing or ringing a bell and so on and we might extend that out into how we eat, how we talk to each other, how we get on and off public transport, how we relate to each other in all different sorts of circumstances. And are we attentive to those everyday activities? Um, and so the uh, Huenang, who was illiterate just noticed that there was all this um, uh, um, activity around this, this poem, people coming and offering incense and making bows and the teacher saw it and said, this is a really great expression of the Dharma and you should all memorize this poem and uh, practice it, um, practice this. Um, uh, and um, so Huenang, who couldn't read, was, of course, interested. And um, uh, he wanted to know something about this, the Gatha, because everybody was saying it could, it would be very useful for your practice. Um, and so he, um, he asked a, somebody to read it to him. And the person uh, actually said you know like what do you, why do you want to know you're an illiterate you don't know anything and 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 kind of put him down a little bit but he said to this person if you're truly seeking ultimate enlightenment don't 
underestimate a beginner. The lowest people may have the highest insight and the highest people may have no insight at all. To underestimate other people is a sin without measure or boundary. And so the person was uh, chastened by this scolding. And he said, if you've written a gatha, then I'll write it for you. And But he also said, interestingly, if you attain the Dharma, then you must save me. Do not forget these words. And so these, uh, um, the illiterate young monk wrote his verse, perfect wisdom has no tree, no bright mirror has a stand. Since these things do not exist, what can ever gather dust? And so this is also a very clear, wonderful presentation. And perhaps in our, historically or from the Madhyamaka or middle way school of Buddhism, which is also very strongly influenced Zen. There's a, a, um, a dedicatory verse in Nagarjuna's uh, Mula Madhyamika Karika. You don't have to remember any of these um, sutras. It's just for a sutra nerd, it's, it's something that I like to do. But this, this, the dedicatory verse, um, I think, outlines this school or emphasis that the, the, uh, that Huenang was talking about. Uh, it's just short. I'll read it. Uh, I salute the fully enlightened one, the best of orators who taught the doctrine of dependent origination, according to which there is neither cessation nor origination, neither annihilation nor the eternal, neither singularity nor plurality, neither the coming nor the going of any dharma for the purpose of nirvana characterized by the auspicious cessation of hypostasization. And that's like a designation, categorization or conceptualization. So um, in, the, in the first, um, where there is a practice that needs attending to, the uh, Yogacara tradition is, um, is more the mind-only tradition. And so we study in, in Zen about the nature of our mind. What is a mind? What is thinking? What is emotion? What is feeling? And we notice all of these things. We pay particular attention to them. For example, in, in Yogacara Buddhism, maybe that's not so clearly seen. Maybe that one is... There's, um, they do meditations like that looks like a blue pen. Can you see that's a blue pen or this is a blue robe? Um, but uh, even modern science says if you were to analyze any of the particles in the robe, you couldn't find any blue. There is no blue in the smallest particles. Likewise, in any waves or anything that's going between this and your eye, there is no blue in any of those light waves and 
likewise in any cell in our eye or our optic nerve or our visual cortex, there is no color blue. There is no robe in your head that would be uncomfortable, especially you know when you're looking at trees and buildings. So where, how do we know the color blue? How do we know a tree? We're not, there's no treeness in a tree. There's no blue out there. There's no color out there, okay? There's something that we're attributing a particular nature that we've picked up through our various familial, social, cultural conditioning to understand these things. They, they function perfectly. Uh, we can fly across the world using latitude and longitude, north and south and time, but you can't put a line of longitude or latitude on a dissecting table and actually find anything physical there. But we can use these things well. So they, they analyze these things deeply. And this is what is polishing this mirror over and over, understanding what it is that's driving us, that most of what we see is a designation, uh, you know, something where we're designating a quality to something. We think this person is really wise or this person is really stupid or attractive or not attractive. And we're making those things. They're not necessarily in the other person as their self nature. Likewise, when we turn that focus to ourselves, we can't find a permanently existing self. There's just something that's changing all the time. Right now, I'm a speaker and you're a listener. But in some time soon to come, those roles may be reversed. Or we're Zen students and then we get off Zoom and we go and be a parent or a sibling or a, a, a walker or we become something else. There isn't uh, anything permanent. We just use these as designations. So they're, they're looking at the self in that view, and very importantly, I think. Uh, the second verse just says that every time you try to come up with a designation, I am a this, you are a that, I need to get this sort of thing in practice. Uh, I want to overcome this sort of thing. It negates it all. Just It doesn't posit anything you should have. It just keeps negating anything. There's nothing you can find. No past, no present, no future, uh, no, no, no. It's just a negative. And this is something that we often come across in koans or koan language, for example. So... Uh, one of the reasons that this came up for me again to revisit this was um, uh, recently hearing an interview by Genjo Marinello, who's a Rinzai uh, teacher in Seattle. And he um, was being interviewed on his recent book. And he had had uh, three um, teachers, uh, uh, all um, Japanese men that had come over and as monks and were teaching in the States and all of them had 
become very mischievous, you know, some of them are really remarkably so. Genjo is also a psychotherapist. And so he made the comment in his interview that he thought that uh, given, given his um, experience with these people, he thought uh, that having deep psychological insight was more important than Zen insight or spiritual insight. And uh, he actually said at the end when he was asked, is there anything he wants to, wanted to reiterate? He reiterated that, that he actually thought that psychological insight was uh, more difficult and more important. So I, I want to suggest to us that uh, we, we talk about psychological insight, uh, having trained in other traditional medicines, we should be clear that I think when we talk about psychology, we're talking about a Eurocentric view of the world. We, we preference Eurocentric psychology, that that came from Freud and Jung and so on, and think that maybe, maybe incorrectly sometimes that that's kind of like where it's at in terms of understanding human minds and it's the most modern, the most up-to-date and sophisticated. But say, for example, Yogacara Buddhism or mind-only school of Buddhism is equally sophisticated and that, that we can learn similar psychological insights, similar to the first verse, uh, through our own training to understand what is a mind, what is thinking. Maybe not even to be able to answer what thinking is, but what role does thinking play in my life? This is a really good, you know, when you're thinking and going, I'm a this, there are that, that's, what is this? What is this that's going on? Or who is experiencing this? These, I think, a lot of koans boil down to who and what, these sorts of questions. So um, I, I have been uh, distressed by um, some of the scandals that have gone on in Buddhism, but I think that for me it's, it's really, it's much more personal. It's in what way do I get in my own way or do I get in the way of others, you know, and become um, less than skillful in approach, in my approach, in my day-to-day -day life. And uh, I want to, I guess, suggest that we should all keep an eye out on, even, even when we practice, that we're, we come with many enlightenment fantasies. You know, when, when I get to be a, get to have the big enlightenment experience, you know, I'll go outside and the birds will want to come and land on my shoulders and the cats and dogs will come up and want to be with me. And we have all of these fantasies. A lot of what these things get projected onto what we think practice is and also what we think our teachers should be and how they should, how they should teach. But more importantly, and perhaps most subtly, on who we think we are and what we should be doing, what practice is for us. And so um, I'm just encouraging us to, I think there's enormous value in studying 
Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist ethics, and perhaps some, uh, you know, Eurocentric psychology, uh, but also to penetrate and understand what's being said in the second poem. So my concern is really for, for me and for you guys, you know, that not to project onto Buddhism, the Dharma, Zen, robes, shaved heads, whatever it is, lay versus um, uh, religious and all of these, all of these are tangles. What is it? What is that? What is that? What sorts of things do I want Zen to be or think it should be? All of that tangle. What is the tangle? What is the nature of it? And we have two different approaches. Those poems are equal. They're not, you start with one and develop into the other. They're, they're, they're co-equal, they're, they're going on together and we can learn from both approaches. So I'll stop there and um, see if there are any challenges or questions or comments. Thank you very much for listening.